So today we're going to look at one of the most difficult concepts to understand in all the Bible. Aren't you glad that you came here today? So we're going to look at the issue of divine sovereignty versus human responsibility. And we're going to solve it today. So I will introduce it, but hopefully the words of Jesus will teach us and bring some clarity to this. This is something that many people struggle with. And you, many of you have heard me teach this before. You're going to hear me say it again because this has been the most helpful way for me to understand this. The Bible tells us a lot of indicative truths. The Bible tells us that God created the world. The Bible tells us that God is omniscient. He knows all things. The Bible tells us that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. The Bible tells us that God is omnipotent. He is all powerful. The Bible doesn't really tell us how our little brains are supposed to wrap themselves around that. The Bible doesn't really tell us why God interacts with us the way he does. The Bible also tells us that our decisions have real consequences. That what we do in this life really matters. And that even though we feel like we are really doing everything that we do, God is ultimately in control of it all. We know that God is sovereign, and then we know that humans are responsible. We don't necessarily know why or how. And just to put you at ease a little bit, I don't think we're supposed to. Because he is God and we're not. That's the first thing we have to lay down. here. And there is a temptation here to put ourselves in the place of God and say, if I can't understand this God, then I can't believe in him. Well, if you could understand him, if you could understand that, then you would be God and we should all worship you. Feel free to tell your friends that when they say they can't believe in this God and tell them those specific words. If you could understand God, then you would be God and then we should worship you. It should stop people in their tracks. And so I want to just work this out a little bit before we get into our text. Because God is sovereign. You cannot read scripture and come to some other conclusion than God is in control of all things. Yet he has made us in his image. We have his image of thinking, acting, feeling, creating. We have a will given to us by God. But it is still under the laws of our creator. Our will is bound by the will of God. And in a way that we can't even begin to comprehend. And so many of us have had sleepless nights trying to figure out the whys and the hows. But I want you to rest in the that's. Because the hows, we ask questions like, how is it that God is in control? Yet I feel like I'm in control of my actions. If I were to run and jump off of this stage, I would feel like I'm in control of my actions and I would be stupid. But in some regard, this did not catch God by surprise. And God was not off of his throne for the moment I decided to do something stupid. But yet sometimes we like to let God off the hook. Well, God couldn't have been present for this. Well, if God's not present for the bad things, what hope can we have in him for the good things? We also ask questions like, how is it that God knows every hair on my head and every need that I could have? How is it that he knows what every bird needs? How is it that the earth spins perfectly on its axis just the right distance from the sun so we don't burn and so we don't freeze? Rest in he is God. Rest that I am God. In the beginning, God created. Rest in that. Rest that Jesus Christ is the creator and sustainer in all, of all things. Rest in that. And then for that matter, how do we wrap our minds around how is Jesus God and man? How is God three and one? 
How is Jesus God, the Holy Spirit God, the Father God, but Jesus not the Father, the Father not the Spirit, Jesus not the Spirit, and the Father not the Spirit? Wrap your minds around that. We know those things to be true because Scripture declares them, but we don't really know how. We don't even know why. The temptation is to put ourselves in the place of God. And I want you this morning, hopefully from these words of Jesus, to rest in the words of Jesus. That he is God. Yet he has created you in such a way that you can reflect him and bear his image. And hopefully you'll come to this realization that we wouldn't even know these things if God didn't first reveal them to us and teach them to us. Can we rest in that? Can we rest that God is the teacher, that God is in control, even if we don't know why and even if we don't know how? It is one of the marks of a believer that we can rest in God's sovereignty and rest in some way that we don't understand that our world interacts with his. Scripture is a great example of this. So I want to ask you a question. We've been going through the book of John. Who is the author of John? John. Did anyone say Holy Spirit? Thank you, Bubba. So John is the author of John. But at the same time, Paul tells us that all scripture is God-breathed. Other times, when the apostles in Acts quote the Old Testament, they said the Holy Spirit says. So scripture at the same time is breathed out by God. The Holy Spirit of God is the author of scripture. Yet we see John's personality. We get John's experiences. We get John's perspectives. We know that God is the author of scripture. We also know that God uses human authors. We don't know how. John is not a puppet. We get John's real experiences. John was really thinking when he was writing, but he was fully guided by the Holy Spirit. So this is, that's one of those enigmas that we'll drive ourselves crazy trying to figure out unless we can rest that God is God and we're not. We can rest that God works through human instruments and he maintains his sovereignty, yet uses our personality to do it. All right, so that's leading up to what we're talking about today. So hopefully that'll be clear as we walk through, and I'm going to uh, point out in our text where that will make sense. So we're coming off the heels of last week. We looked in John chapter 6, and we looked at another very easy doctrine. We, we looked at the perseverance of the saints. We looked at assurance that we can have in salvation. And how can we have that assurance in salvation? Because Jesus uses some of the strongest language he ever uses. If you come to me, you, you will never hunger, never, ever hunger. If you come to me, you will never, ever thirst. And if you come to me, I will never, ever cast you out. This is strong language. This is assurance language. And we're to rest in that because many people are burdened with the pain of maintaining their own salvation. And I want to, to free you from that because that's what Jesus wanted us to rest in him. There is no freedom in Christ if it is still on our shoulders. And so that's where we find ourselves. This is the same conversation, the same breath, and Jesus just takes it a step further. So open your Bibles to chapter 6. And of course, Jesus is giving them eternal truths. He's opening up the doctrines of grace to these Jews, and they're still thinking about, he called himself the bread that comes down from heaven? This is where we find ourselves. They're still stuck on the bread comment. And Jesus is going to address that. He's going to challenge them again. So John chapter 6, verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. 
and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and then they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that come that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for opening your divine counsel up to us. Things that should be way beyond our comprehension, you try to condescend and explain to us. Lord, forgive us when we try to fit you into our box. Forgive us when we try to put your work into our terms. Lord, forgive us when we think too small of who you are. Forgive you, forgive us when, when we don't give you the glory that you deserve. Lord, I just pray that this morning you would get all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. Because it is you who saves sinners. It is you who redeems those who hate you. It is you who redeems those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. It is you who redeems them, sanctifies them, and glorifies them. Thank you, Lord, for the salvation that we can rest in. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. And I just pray that this morning your spirit would go before me. That your spirit would speak. And that as an instrument, I may not get in the way. But your will will be proclaimed. Your excellencies will be raised. And our hearts and minds will be transformed by the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so right away in verse 41 here, we see something that the Jews have been known for throughout the ages. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. This word is interesting because the same word from the Old Testament is translated in Exodus 16. Anyone know what's going on in Exodus 16? Exodus 16 is when they're in the wilderness and they're complaining about going back to Egypt. They were grumbling amongst themselves because they were saying that there is onions back in, in Egypt and there's spices back in Egypt and we long for this. And so they're grumbling among the, amongst themselves. Yet God gives them manna from heaven. Then they start to eat the manna. And then they grumble because they don't have any variety in the manna. So God gives them quail. And then they grumble against. Exodus 16 is marked by the Jews grumbling. This is not by accident that Jesus uses this here and John uses this here. He's reminding them. Remember when you grumbled before? The bread has come down from heaven again. And this time it's better and you're still grumbling. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? They are in the same conundrum where we started out here. The same tension of how can Jesus be from Joseph, yet from heaven? We know he's from Joseph. We know he's man. But how can he be God at the same time? This is the tension of the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. And they find themselves here in this conundrum. How can he be from Joseph and from heaven? They're trying to wrap themselves around these two worlds because to them there was a complete separation. And for most people, there is a complete separation. There is this world and there is heaven and the two do not meet and intersect. But we know in Christ that they do. 
And ever since Christ, they do. We're going to get a little bit more into that as we go. So Jesus knows their heart, knows their minds, hears their grumbling, and he responds to them. Do not grumble among yourselves. Stop grumbling. Stop whining. Stop complaining. I have something to tell you. I've got something real important here. And this is a common charge because the Jews had always grumbled against God. And even in in Acts, when we see the church growing and people are, are praising God in the sanctuary, but they're not doing it according to rabbinic tradition and they grumble against God. This is something that marks them. And it's easy to say, well, this is something that the Jews did then. We need to be really careful that we ourselves are not doing that. We need to be really careful that we ourselves are not grumbling in the way that God does things. We're not grumbling that the Bible says things that make us uncomfortable. We're not grumbling when things don't go the way we think they should. We're not grumbling when God doesn't provide in the way we think we should, he should or in the amount that we think he should. We are as guilty of grumbling in the blessings of God as the Jews are. And we should, and we should hold ourselves accountable to that and just be aware of that. So that's just kind of introduction. That's where we find ourselves. Now, that's where Jesus goes straight to the deep end. Sorry, you guys didn't listen to me the first time. You weren't paying attention uh, to the spiritual truths I'm trying to tell you. Now he's going to cut right to the heart of the issue. Verse 44, again, really strong language. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. What does no one mean here? No one. What about the really nice person? No one. What about the person who just loves this generic God but doesn't really like Jesus? No one comes to me unless the Father first draws him. This is strong language. There's no loophole back door here. We're going to spend some time here because this makes people uncomfortable. And so I like what makes people uncomfortable. I just do. I'm sadistic that way. Sorry. Not because it makes me happy, but because this is what Scripture says. And if there are things in Scripture that make us uncomfortable, the tendency is to run away from it. But what we need to do when Scripture makes us uncomfortable is lean into it. Because either we're wrong or Scripture is. I know what side I'm taking in that. So the first thing we see, no one can come to me unless the Father first draws him. No one. No one comes on their own. This tells us the depraved nature of our sinful condition. This tells us our deadness and our inability in and of ourselves to come. Unless the Father draws, we can't do it. We're all dead in our trespasses and sins. And dead people do not breathe life into themselves. They need living bread. This is what Jesus is is telling them. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So what does this word draw mean? Uh, Elkuo in the Greek is used a lot in John. And it has a wide range of, of meanings. So the word for, for draw uh, can mean drag, pull, um, persuade. But essentially it's affecting a change in direction. So the Father must draw. Let me give you a few examples. Chapter 18. We know this famous scene where in the Garden of Gethsemane, the, the soldiers come in and Jesus, or, uh, Peter pulls his sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest. The language there, when he drew his sword, Peter took the sword out of the sheath and cut off the ear of the high priest. This word is also used in John chapter 21, when Jesus is risen from the dead and he meets the disciples on, on the beach. Again, Peter yells out to them and says, you know, cast your net on the other side, there's more fish over there. Peter cannot 
haul it in is the word that ESV translated, but same, same word. Peter cannot draw that net in because it is so heavy. And again, he has to row to shore and he has to, it, the word is used again. He cannot draw it in because it's so heavy. It requires an exertion. It requires a, a pull on something that is not moving on its own. That sword did not jump out of the holster on its own. Those fish did not jump out of the water on their own. They had to be drawn in. Uh, there's another one in, in John chapter 12 when Jesus says when he's raised up, he's going to draw all people to himself. When Jesus is, is resurrected, there's a resurrection that, that comes. Trust me, people do not resurrect themselves out of the grave. Our bodies will not be glorified on our own. It's something that has to be drawn upon an immovable object. Again, we see this in Acts when Paul and Silas were, were, were preaching. They were dragged into jail. Same word. Paul and Silas did not put themselves in jail for preaching the gospel. I guarantee you that. They were dragged there. So what does this, what does this teach us? The word here that Jesus uses, and this isn't by accident because he uses it again, and we'll see that at the end of, at the end of chapter six. It's not by accident. So what's going on here? It's an explanation of how they come to Christ. They are drawn. They are, they are dragged. They are pulled. Their direction is changed by the power of God because they can't change it on their own. This is what we call irresistible grace or effective grace. That the grace of God reaches into sinful humanity and changes their direction because they're not capable of it themselves. He draws them in and God's grace always accomplishes what it sets out to do. Let's look at that verse. Uh, we won't spend too much time on it because we're going to get here in two weeks. But look at the end of chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 40, or 64. Look at what Jesus says. But there were some of you who do not believe. John's little great teaching moments in the parentheses. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. This is a hard issue. Jesus knows what's going on here. And he knows their hearts. And then he reminds them. Look what he says in verse 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. John tells us Jesus' insight here. He knows their, their hearts. He knows the work of the Father. And he knows when those reject him. And apart from the Father drawing, we would never believe. And so back to this tension here. Let me give you by example. Let me ask another question. Who cut off the ear of the high priest, Peter or the sword? Peter cut off the ear of the high priest by his action, but what actually accomplished it? Sword. Okay, who dragged in the fish? Was it Peter or the net? The answer is both, right? Because Peter was the initial cause. The secondary cause was the, the net. So, but someone had to act and some, and some instrument had to be used. And so the real question here is, but who is ultimately responsible? Is it the object? Is it the instrument of the action or is it the one who is moving the action? You guys follow me here? And this is really important to understand a primary cause because just because someone uses an instrument, if I write something inflammatory with a pen, it is not the pen's fault. I did that. And the, the instrument was just used to accomplish the person who was acting upon it. And this is important to show who is ultimately responsible for salvation. No one comes to the Father unless he draws them. No one comes to Christ and believes in him unless the Father is first acting. Because in that way, God gets all the glory. God gets all the praise. It is God who is working. Yet at the same time, Those who the Father draws truly come. 
the one who the Father is working on, really comes. The Holy Spirit changes their hearts, changes their desires, change what they, they want, and they actually come. Because the Father works in them and draws them. And so we actually cooperate with what God is doing. He draws us in such a way that we truly come and we truly respond to his divine initiation. And Jesus continues this unbreakable circuit here. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. From the beginning, the Father draws. At the end, the Son raises up. This is ultimately a work of God. And Jesus repeats this phrase over and over and over again, especially in John chapter 6. I will raise them up in the last day. I will raise them up in the last day. The final say belongs to me. The initial say belongs to the Father. We spent a lot of time on this in Romans chapter 8. You guys should know this. Romans chapter 8, uh, 29 and 30. If you can get there quickly, turn with me. But I want you to see this. This is the work of God in salvation. Or this is the work of salvation. Why don't you tell me who's responsible for it? Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, who do you think that he is here? It's not us. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. For many people, predestination is an ugly word. But it is a word of the sovereign God who knows all things and who works in dead sinners to breathe life into him so that we can be conformed to the image of his son. I don't know about you, but before Christ, I had zero desire to be in the image of the son. In order that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Christ came to reconcile humanity. Christ came to begin the work of reconciliation. All of the world was affected by the curse. But Christ coming restores humanity by those who have faith in him. We conform to his image and he is the firstborn of that. Colossians says the firstborn from among the dead. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those who he called, he also justified. Those who he justified, he also glorified. This is what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 6. Those who the Father draws, I will raise up. He just skips all of the the middle steps, which Paul breaks down for us. We'll get into that more in just a moment. But I I want you to see that biblically. That's really important. We're going to get to our end of that in just a moment. And Jesus goes on. It is written in the prophets, back in John chapter 6, verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. The prophets, whenever Jesus says the prophets, it's that entire section of the Hebrew scriptures that basically spans from the the, the major prophets, the minor prophets, and chronicles. It was everything that, that was written of by prophets looking forward to Christ. The prophets. We're going to look at two. We're going to look at Jeremiah and um, Isaiah. Jeremiah, which we read earlier, but I want to go back to it. There's also examples in Joel and Micah and Zephaniah and Malachi of those being taught by God. So we're going to look at these references and we're going to break this verse down and see what it means for the, for the sake of our text. Alright, so first we're going to turn to Isaiah 54 verses 13 and 14. So Isaiah 54 comes after a very famous text. What comes before Isaiah 54? Trick question. Isaiah 53. Yeah. What happens in Isaiah 53? Isaiah 53 is this great prophecy of the suffering servant. 
The one who would come, the one who would shed his blood for the sake of others' sins. The ones who would be beat and abused. The, 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 the one who would, who would bear stripes and lashes for the sake of someone else's sin. The one who was crushed, was put to grief, but who would eventually bear the iniquities so that those who believe in him would be righteous. This is the suffering servant. Ring any bells? This should. Coming right on the heels of the suffering servant is Isaiah 54. If you have your, your ESV, it says the eternal covenant of peace. How does the new covenant get ushered in? By the work of the suffering servants. So the suffering servant who gives himself for the sake of others ushers in a covenant of peace. And here is one of the marks of the covenants of peace. Verse 13 of Isaiah 54. All your children shall be taught by the Lord. And great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. And for terror, for it shall not come near you. All your children shall be taught by the Lord and shall be the peace. And great shall be the peace of your children. The new covenant is marked by teaching from God and peace among the children. This is important. This is what Jesus is drawing on here. And early we read from Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31 is that great text, that great new covenant text where God talks about what he's going to do. Because the people, he had just finished... Um, lashing the, the, the Jews because of their rejection of him and all the things uh, that, that they had done wrong. But then he breathes in, in verse 31, behold. So in the New Covenant language, we're only going to look at verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. This is a mark of those in the New Covenant. They shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. What is knowledge of God connected to? Forgiveness of sins. This is a mark of, of the new covenant. Those who are taught by God, they're not learning from others. The Holy Spirit is their teacher. We'll get to that later in, in chapter 14. And they are marked by the forgiveness of their sins. This is beautiful language. And this is what Jesus is, is pointing back to. All will be taught by God. Hopefully that, that, that helps a little bit. And Paul continues this language. He has this great verse in uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. He talks about, a, a, we don't have to turn there, but he just says that you yourselves know how to love one another because you are, you've been taught by God. This is not of you. God taught you to love one another. A mark of those in the new covenant, a mark of those in the church is that they love one another. And that has been taught to them by God. So this is what Jesus is, is referencing. He's, he's looking back to Isaiah 54, which is coming on the heels of Isaiah 53. And then, now it's important to look at some of these words here. And it is written by the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. What does all mean here? They will all be taught by God. All those in the covenant, all God teaches. How do we know that? Because there's a direct connection between all who are taught, and right after it, everyone, the same all, who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. There's this direct line. The Father teaches. He hears them. Or excuse me, they, they, they hear him and then they come to the Son. I know it seems like we're, we're splitting hairs here, but this is really important to see how God works. Jesus chooses these words carefully. These are words of Scripture. All who the Father teaches, every one of them who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Who is it? Who is everyone who hears and talks? This is, this is true Israel. These are the, 
spiritual Israel. These are the ones that God draws the elect. And they must hear and learn before they come. This is not just a general sense. I love how yesterday the, the ladies in the group talked about the general call and the effective call. And you're called, but few are chosen. There's a general call that goes out to everyone. Everyone should hear the gospel message. But the effective call rests on those who the one that God is teaching. And when they hear the words, they take it to heart and they truly learn it because the soil has been prepared by God himself. There's a great example of this in Matthew chapter 16. Turn to Matthew 16 for me. One of the most famous statements of of Peter in all of Scripture. Look at who Jesus accredits this to. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? One of the most important questions anyone can ever answer. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him. Look how he answers him. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. No one can say that Jesus Christ is Lord except the father teaches him that. You hear this from Jesus' own mouth. You could not have learned that from flesh and blood because that's not earthly wisdom. That is divine counsel. And only God can open a mind to say something like that, that you are Christ, the son of the living God. It's a wonderful picture of those who are spiritually drawn by God. God teaches them, draws them, they learn, and they willingly come to Christ. This divine call and human responsibility working together. The Father works in us and our minds respond and say, Jesus, you are Lord. And in an inexplicable fashion that we wouldn't even understand it. I have a great story of this. Um, He didn't know I was going to use this, but Bubba, you better be awake. Many of you know Bubba. um, And by the, the earth's standards... Bubba should never be able to understand higher truths. Many people would write off someone like like Bubba. There's a great story of how God draws people to himself. Bubba went and saw a man who was was, was preaching, with, um, and he gave this this gospel call. And he he gave a call for those who the Father is is, is drawing to come forward. Bubba says that he saw a hand drawing him to come forward. Now, before this, Bubba loved Orlando Magic basketball. At his credit, that's when they're worth watching. Um, And he loved a lot of things, but he had no desire for the word of God. He had no desire to sing praises. He had no desire to come to church. He had no desire to talk about Jesus. But after this day where a hand drew him forward, he he has changed. He is a new person. We have seen someone who, before meals, he must read scripture. He wants to pray. He wants to send you scripture to encourage you. The most amazing thing about this story is the man who was preaching had no arms and no legs. This was not his hand drawing him forward. This is a great picture of how the Father works. He draws those to him, and those he draws, they come. And they learn, and they respond in faith. I love that. Back in John, verse 46. 
Jesus goes a little further. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. This should give us pictures back to John 1.18. It says no one has seen the Father except the, the one who had come from the Father. He wants to make sure that you're not taking credit for this. God did not show up to you directly if you believe it is from me. If you've seen me, he tells them later in chapter 14, you have seen the Father. And so when we, we have learned from the Father, we learn from the Son. We learn through Christ. We learn from the Word. We learn from the Spirit, even if we have never seen God. Because we can't see God and live in this life. But the one who came from the Father can show us to Him. And that's an important distinction here. Verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. This is an interesting statement. This is not bad English. This is correct theology. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. This is not a future statement. Many times we read this in the future. If you believe, you will have eternal life. This is in the present. Those who believe, believe because they have eternal life. This is not by accident. Jesus uses the same uh, phrasing in, in verse 24. Those believe, if you believe, you have eternal life. Verse 24 of um, chapter 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Present tense. Many times we read this, oh, if I believe, then I will have eternal life. The mark of someone who believes is someone who possesses eternal life. Someone who has been drawn by the Father and taught by the Father and hears the Father, that one has eternal life and that one believes. So what Jesus is saying here is not saying these words by accident. It should make us think back to verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who draws, uh, Father who sent me draws me. Truly true, draws them, excuse me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. It's a mark of the one who believes. Then he goes on to again use this statement, short and powerful. I am the bread of life. This short, powerful statement is reiterated and expanded. I am the bread of life. How does this bread give life? All the Father teaches and all the Father draws, they will come. They will trust in the Son. They do have eternal life and they will believe. This is, this, this is a linear thought process here that Jesus is unveiling for us. And he contrasts it. Verse 49, your fathers, remember we looked at last week, they call on their fathers in the wilderness. Jesus calls on his Father in heaven. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. He's tying up the discussion on, on, on manna. They ate, they died. They looked for earthly fulfillment, and they died. Just like your ancestors, you were blind to the work of God. Just like your ancestors, you are rejecting his provision. You are rejecting his bread, and you will die if you reject what is given to you by God, and I'm standing in front of you. There's no life in Christ. If you're looking for sustenance anywhere else, there's only death. Apart from the bread of life, there is no life. And now he tells what that bread is in verse 50 and 51. And I want you, I want you guys to get this because this is so important. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. One, one commentator says he wondered if Jesus pointed at himself. This is the bread of heaven. I don't know if he did or not. Uh, but that's the, the, the sense here. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. So what is this bread? He's going to get into the nature of that bread in just a moment. 
But I want you to look at the contrast here. If you eat of this bread, you won't die. Your fathers died. Those who eat of me will not die. And so remember we looked at this in, in John chapter 5. The scripture speaks of two deaths. Uh, Revelation expands on this. The first death that everyone will face. Everyone will die. It's the inevitability of death and taxes. Everyone will die. But the second death that is associated with judgment and punishment for eternity. If you believe in me, if you eat of me, you will not die that death. That's the one you should be worried about. Jesus says, don't, don't fear the one that can kill your body. Fear the one that can throw you into hell. Fear that death. If you eat of me, those who eat of this, they um, so the one that may eat of it and not die. That's why he came down from heaven. Jesus came so that we might live. We might live through judgment. And this is John's purpose in writing. I am writing this so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ and you may believe and have eternal life and not perish. John 21, that's his purpose in writing this book. And Jesus says it again and again and again. And the Spirit and John are in agreement in this. So now we kind of get to the verse that might be easy to, to skip over, but it's so important. Verse 51. I am the living bread. Slight change. Deeper analogy here. I am, I, I am the bread of life sounds a little singular. But I am the, the living bread. The character of the bread itself is that it gives life. It's bread of life to living bread. It has life in itself. It has life-giving properties in it. It is living and active. It is a continual nature. And this should remind them of the feeding of the 5,000 that we just came on the heels of. I'm living bread. This bread that you thought was just two loaves, it keeps producing. There is life out of it. It, is, it, it. it multiplies by pure nature of itself. I am that living bread. Just like living water keeps flowing, living bread keeps giving, and those who eat of it keep living. It is living and it is eternally effective. Why? Because it is Christ himself. It is based on the divine work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Living bread. It has life in it because he did it and he accomplished it perfectly. I want to spend a little time on this last line because this is really helpful in understanding the bread of life. I want to break this down a little bit and then I want to go back. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. A couple things. Anytime Paul uses the word world, it is almost always negative. Anytime John uses the word world, it's almost always positive. So you got to be very careful in to understand the author and what they mean. Because when John uses the world, hey, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, who should ever believe in him, so not perish but have eternal life. We know that. This is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Anytime John uses world, he's speaking in a, in a positive sense of God's creation, of those who will receive the, the, the mercy and the grace of God. But when Paul uses it, he uses the world in a negative sense. So you have to be careful to know what is being used here. That's the first thing. Also, in Paul, flesh is almost always negative. But in John, it is almost always positive. Again, you can know the, the personalities of the authors here. We know uh, chapter 1, verse 14, for the word became flesh. It's a positive thing. God himself, this eternal word, has taken on flesh. He has become man for us. So this is a good thing. This is the world, God's, God's creation is now experiencing the bread of life. Come into this world. And the flesh has now walked among us, God incarnate. So 
And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now we break down this last part here. The bread that I will give. This is a future tense. Jesus speaking while he's walking around. The bread that I will give. What does Jesus give in the future? What can Jesus give in the future? How does he give his flesh? Why are we here? He gave his flesh, his body on the cross. He gave his flesh in order that we may have life. Should get us to think back to Isaiah 53, the suffering servant who gave his flesh, his own stripes, his own wounds unto the point of death so that the world may have life. Those who the Father draws believe in him, will believe and live and have eternal life. This is what we call penal substitutionary atonement. There you go. Break that down. It's very easy. All you have to remember, uh, penal punishment, bad thing, substitution, someone else takes the, the place, atonement, a covering for sins. This is an understanding that there is a punishment given to someone else as a covering for sins. This is what Isaiah 53 is all about. This is what our salvation is all about. Someone else took the punishment that we deserve, a substitute for us, because we deserve to die because our sins are so reprehensible to God that they deserve death. That Jesus himself will give his flesh as a gift for the, so that the world may live. And when he says world, that is the, the good news that the gospel will go to every tongue, tribe, and nation. And that all peoples throughout history will hear the gospel proclaimed and those who believe will be saved. The bread of life is believing in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Let me say that again. The bread of life is believing on the finished work of Christ on the cross. That is the bread of life. If you believe in this bread, if you eat this bread, you will have life and life everlasting because it flows from me. It is true drink. It is true water from a living well. It is the the true vine that nourishes forever. It's a beautiful picture of us believing because the Father draws and he teaches us. And we have something to believe in because he sent the Son. And this is all done by the Spirit. We'll get there. Chapter 14, chapter 16. You can read ahead if you want. But Jesus, the Word made flesh, was sent by the Father to give his life as a ransom from ours. He rose again so that we may rise to life in him. This is what Jesus is explaining. You want bread? I'll give you bread. I'm going to the cross so that you, you may eat and live. Eat this. Digest it. Savor it. You must take it in. Don't be like those in Hebrews 6 who just taste, eat, feast, because this is good news. Don't be like the world in a Paul sense. Don't be like the world who's offered living bread and wants something else and reject it for their idea of of what is better. He said, eat of this bread, this living bread. Let me come back to our initial question. Our attention is always the how and, and the why. First, all we really need to know is that. We need to know that Jesus Christ is God made flesh. Jesus Christ lived a life we couldn't. Jesus Christ was the substitutionary atonement, the sacrifice for our sins because we couldn't do it ourselves because we were dead in sin. Dead people do not raise themselves up. And those he calls, he justifies, he sanctifies, he glorifies, he raises them up in the last day. Know that. If it doesn't make sense to you, join the club doesn't make sense to any of us. How could God love me in my sin? Most of my life I spat in the face of God because I wanted my sin more than I wanted him. 
This is the bread that we eat of. Don't worry about the temptation or the why or the how. Because either it's true that God is who he says he is or he's a liar and we should all go home. And then there's the other question people always ask. Well, if God is drawing people, why should I share with anybody? If God's already doing the work, what do I have to do with this? First, because he tells us to. But secondly, because we get to. Because in God's grand plan of redemption, he uses us. He uses us the same way Peter used the sword and and the net. He uses an instrument like us, broken vessels to accomplish his purpose. And we should wonder at that. We should wonder that the God of all mercy and justice, the creator of heaven and earth, the omnipresent, omniscient, um, and everything else God is, uses us. Uses us as instruments to accomplish his will. We are part of a cosmic spiritual gospel. The God of the ages, the beginning and the end, is reconciling all things to himself, and he chooses to use us. And so at the same time, his sovereignty is preserved, and our responsibility is held against us or to our credit, because he has breathed life within us. So I just want to conclude this morning. A couple challenges. Believers, know this to be true. Know that Jesus is who he says he is. Know that God's plan is irrevocable. Know that God is sovereign over all things. Know that God loves you and uses you for the sake of his kingdom and glory. Know that. And for those who don't know the Lord, is he drawing you? Is the Father working in your heart? Are you sitting here and you're wondering, can this be me? Could God work in me? Could God use someone like me? If you're asking that question that the Holy Spirit is working on your heart, and I just pray that you would cry out to God for that. God, I want this to be me. I want you to be drawing me in. I want to be yours. I want to be taught by you. I want to know you. I want to believe, and I want eternal life. And I want to trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior. Hear his voice. Come and eat. It is good, and you will never hunger, and you will never thirst. He will never cast you out again. Because all the Father draws, he will teach. It's the divine part of it. But all he teaches, they will come and they will eat and they will live. And that is our response to it. Because in Christ, just to sum all this up, our Savior came as a suffering servant. Pay the penalty we couldn't pay. To die the death we deserved. And he gave his flesh so that we could receive the covenant of peace. Just to be taught by God and to live eternally with our God as his people. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the truth of the gospel. Thank you that even in our sinful condition, nothing to offer of ourselves, you drew us, you taught us, and you called us. And you worked within us so that our whole nature is changed. Our heart of stone becomes a heart of flesh, and we cry out to our God, say, save me, for I am a sinner. And you do. And you can save us Because our debt has been paid. And it is paid in full. And not only is it paid in full, but righteousness is added to our account and we are called children of God. We sing these songs because we believe these songs. Lord, let what we hear turn into doxology and praise. Let what we hear turn turn to exalt your name and lift you up because you are worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. 
You get all the credit, all the glory, all the honor, yet you choose to use us. The man of sorrows, beaten and stricken, became our Savior so we could be conformed to his image. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Amen.